I'm very excited about the potential for AI and music making. I, I um, guarantee you that's where the next big wave of musical innovation is going to come out of. It's going to come from kids getting their hands on this cheap AI technology, feeding songs they like, songs they don't like into it, seeing what weird shit pops out of it, and then editing that to make something out of it. You know, if, if you just take raw AI generated music, it's generally not that listenable. But if you get a musician working on it and they can find those things, you know, the way AI art will have too many fingers on your hands or whatever, too many eyes on your face, they'll get those valley of the uncanny weirdness and then be able to put it into a structure that's that works like a song. Blogger and podcaster Nathan Wilcox returns to the Plutopia podcast. We explore the emergence of ChatGPT, music and art created with artificial intelligence, the evolution of dance music, changes in the Austin music scene, streaming music, and of course, politics. Nate, welcome hey, hey. to our podcast. Happy to be here. How are you doing? Doing all right. Doing all right. It's been interesting 2023 so far. What's been happening? Well, I got laid off from my job, and um, then I got sort of semi-reinstated to my job. And so, I figured they would do that. I mean, uh, how many uh, how many really smart bloggers are there out there? Or is it there's infinite more? really smart bloggers out there? I think or pretty close that's how the market treats us anyway and they're but, all uh, named chat gpt right <laughs> watch out for chat it's coming for your job yep yep uh, some some exciting possibilities with the chat technology but um well that's all... definitely worth talking about you know there's i've been in a debate for at least a couple of days now with uh uh people who are concerned that chat gpt will take jobs from journalists and my comment was that any journalist who could be replaced by chat gpt as a journalist i would not be reading anyway hmm. well I'll, I'll agree with that but uh on the other hand if it gets really really good to where you can't tell the difference when it passes the turing test uh, or the bullshit test of <laughs> its output, then it might be worth worrying about. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen. It's never going to be like really high quality authorship, right? No, gonna... but it does show signs of being able to do things like report a baseball game, you know, reasonably well, even with quotes. Um, so, you know, as a publisher and editor and blogger, I can see utility for it. You know, it would let me write maybe five times as much uh, content as I could write by myself. And you just need to get it started, then proofread it and edit it. And you can have something valuable. Um, the problem with it seems to be though, that if the, you know, the algorithm takes in data and feeds in off information and writing that it's reading and Supposedly, if it's cut off from new data for, for very long, it will lose track of what humans write like. And so it, it can't ultimately replace everything because there's uh, it's sort of like soil when you farm it too much and the nutrients get stripped out. Um, if, if you look at content mills or content farms, 
there's very little there there. I mean, there might be an article that meets the SEO requirements so that Google will point you at it. But when you read it, you can usually tell no actual thought went into this. And, uh, you know, if you don't refresh the AI with, with new data, new prose written by real human beings, it, it strip mines itself and gets garbage in, garbage further, out. Yeah. Further and further removed from reality. So, um, I'm less worried about the jobs impact than I am the sort of brain impact. I mean, we're exposing ourselves to so much content that's devoid of any qualities or value other than raw information transmission. Um, it just can't be good for our brains or our culture, you know, like you see these pages that are just SEO mills and, you know, it's, it's, it's the, written equivalent of empty calories there's nothing there's nothing there but are people so, really reading that stuff yeah i mean they're scanning it they're skimming it you know and and when you're googling for something and you're and you're looking for information sometimes you'll find articles like that that are valuable but usually you can tell when it's just something trying to get you to click on an amazon affiliate link or whatever their particular scam angle is uh, and it's you know got extremely limited utility but yeah. Um, I'm very excited about the potential for AI and music making. I, I um, guarantee you that's where the next big wave of musical innovation is going to come out of. It's going to come from kids getting their hands on this cheap AI technology, feeding songs they like, songs they don't like into it, seeing what weird shit pops out of it, and then editing that to make something out of it. You know, if, if you just take raw AI generated music, it's generally not that listenable. But if you get a musician working on it and they can find those things, you know, the way AI art will have too many fingers on your hands or whatever, or too many eyes on your face, they'll get those valley of the uncanny weirdness and then be able to put it into a structure that's that works like a song. And, and I think... Um, you know, spend the last five years obsessively studying music history. The times we have the most musical innovation is when young kids get their hands on cheap new equipment. You know, Jimi Hendrix getting his hands on a Fender Stratocaster and a Fender Twin Amplifier and going to town or kids in Detroit in the 80s getting their hands on cheap drum machines and cheap samplers and boom, you've got techno music, you know. Yeah. So it's it's very hard to make an innovative guitar song today but it's probably pretty easy to make an innovative AI uh, recording today, you know? And so that, that's what I've seen is when musicians get their hands on new technologies, that's when innovation happens. And I think AI is just screaming out to be the next thing. It's like so many people complain about auto-tune having killed music or whatever, but then if you actually pay attention to the fans that are following it, the most creative artists out there are using auto-tune to create, you know, like the obvious stupid purpose of auto-tune is I can't sing very well, make me sound like I can sing, but there's other ways to use it where I want to sound like a demon, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to take this machine and turn all the knobs in all directions and get crazy weird sounds. And that's what kids are doing, particularly in Jamaica and, the drill scene in England and Brooklyn drill and Chicago drill. I mean, there's some, some pretty cool stuff going on with auto tune. And so I'm pretty excited to see 
what musical artists can do with AI. I loved, um, what is the the big AI art app? It's something. Well, there's one called Dolly and there's another one called Mid Journey and there's probably others besides yeah. those. Is that what there you're thinking about? Stable Diffusion is the one I was thinking of actually. And oh, and hmm. a, a friend of mine's a, a, a visual artist and sculptor and he was just going to town making the coolest stuff with the AI art engine, you know, by feeding in, here's the things I want. And then he would get back these weird images and then he could take the weird images as raw material and then, you know, format them and edit them into really deeply unsettling finished product that, that totally living in the Valley of the Uncanny. And he was saying that the cool effects he was getting were already obsolete within a week or two of getting them because the program had been updated and had fixed a lot of those imperfections that he found so fascinating, you know, and it would stop making the person with the weird third arm coming out of the back. And he's like, no, that's what I want. You know, like, so, so he was recognizing that he was working on a, in a medium that was very short lived and, and he's only going to have this technology available at a point where he can manipulate it for a few weeks and, and really went to town. Did you see this cool image to, that we used to promote tonight's show? I did not. It's, uh, it's an image I created in Dolly. Pretty cool. Yeah. And I've been doing that uh, off and on for a few months now, uh, using generative AI to create uh, images for our blurbs works pretty well they yeah. look hard they look kind of horrible but you know they're yeah. interesting yeah that's that's you know and i think you got to lean in to the distortions it's just like jimmy hendrix figuring out oh this amplifier making feedback is actually a good thing and i can actually do cool things with this effect that engineers had worked so hard to try to you know eliminate and so it's kind of a race between the artists going hey wait this is actually cool let me use this toy and the engineers going, ooh, this is producing irregular, you know, ugliness. Let's let's iron out all the kinks in this in this tool. So there's a, a point at which the tools are still producing crazy weird shit, and and the artists, you know, have this opportunity to seize the day. Do you know um, of anything that that is uh, that we would kind of know that's been produced recently that was produced with AI? I do not. Or with an AI component. I, My argument about AI has always been that it's going to be a support. It's never going to be like the centerpiece. Yeah. And and that's kind of what you're saying about music, that AI yeah. is just another tool in the musician's uh, toolkit. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the problem I have with uh, AI, uh, from my viewpoint, you know, I do more producing that it uh, is it is a great tool, but uh, what happens with all these new tools is when it becomes so easy and so available for you to create stuff with, then the market gets overwhelmed, but everyone sure. can be a music producer. Everyone can be a musician uh, without a lot of uh, study. It just uh, it, uh, I, I listened to some of the things that have been put together, you know, a lot of sampling stuff. And it's interesting, but after a while, I, I still long for those guys who spent 20 years learning to play their instrument. 
Well, if you have amazing creativity and you create music that's very compelling, does it really matter whether you understand the mechanics or, or whether you created it using some instrumentation that made it easier for you to translate what you were hearing in your head, you know, into something that that you could play for others? I don't see a distinction there. I mean, um, the best musicians have always been the ones that took shortcuts. You know, Lennon and McCartney couldn't read or write music. They, yeah. but they, they had a mastery of their instruments and they could hear and they could reproduce what they were hearing. Um, but you know, like the, the e e economics of music, that's something this was a recurring argument I had with Ed Ward for years and years that he was very concerned with the, catastrophe that happened in the music business around the year 2000 when suddenly recorded music became cheap became essentially worthless or free which had never happened before in human history i mean you know we didn't have any recorded music at all until we had sheet music and that's a pretty poor substitute then we had recorded music you know by the 1890s we had quality electrical recording by the 1920s and you know in the to early 2000s and you suddenly had mp3s and it was very easy to make copies digital copies of music that wouldn't degrade with reproduction but the real annihilation of musician jobs happened in the 1920s like if you read accounts of life in america or europe in the early part of the 20, 20th century the first decade and a half of the 20th century there would be two rush hours because there was a morning rush hour when the workers, you know, went went to the factories and things like that. Then there would be another rush hour when the musicians picked up their instrument cases and went out because any dance hall, any restaurant with music, any performer had to have live musicians. There were no jukeboxes. There were no records. There was no radio. And so musician was a trade that you didn't have to be very good. You, if you could play a song all the way through, you probably could make some money and you know so there's this huge body of mostly mediocre or bad musicians who are making a living playing music once songs are being played on the radio once people can buy records and reproduce that sound at home you know the number of jobs for working musicians fell off a table and that fell off the table a hundred years ago not so much in the 90 1999-2006 era that we worry about you know you know home taping is killing music or whatever the the real death knell of working musicians happened when we invented recorded music so you know i i i understand and feel the argument for you know there are too many people making music it doesn't it's not like you know in the 1930s robert johnson could get on a bus or hitchhike and if he had his guitar case somebody would say hey mister can you play that guitar i've got a nickel let me hear yeah. you play it, you know, because people were starved to hear music just because you couldn't hear music. And, yeah. you know, but now music is everywhere. People, you know, you probably have four people in your house playing four different songs at any given time, all in their headphones. And it's changed the way we interact with music dramatically. But I don't think it's just as simple as, oh, technology bad. It's too easy to make music. I mean, historically, music was made by communities. I mean, in Africa, there was no distinction between musician and audience. Everybody in the community made music together. And, you know, there might've been certain performers or singers or whatever that people wanted to hear more 
of, but it wasn't this exalted thing, you know, musician on the stage, lording it over everyone else and the audience being quiet and consuming. It was people creating together. And, you know, I don't know, every, every change we make changes other things and, and it's just a constant adaptation to change. I don't think there was ever like a perfect period or a better period, but we're just in a period where it's really cheap and easy to make high quality recorded music and most of the time, that's not going to be very good or very interesting. That's and just... fewer making a whole lot of money doing it, right? But the, yeah, the way that you make few. money now is, uh, I mean, it's kind of go back to at the origination of music as a business. It's like you got to go out and play it live somewhere to make money. For most yeah. musicians, this is true. I mean, you may have somebody like Beyonce who can cut an album. She never has to do anything to support it. She will, but she doesn't have to. Yeah. I mean, there are music so all over the place now. There's so much of it, and there's not a single piece of music that is released that you can't listen to through your streaming service, which you're only paying, what, 10 or 12 bucks for, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the idea. There still is music that you can't get on streaming, but it's rarer and rarer. Um, I mean, there's music people are deliberately making to not put on streaming services or, you know, make sure that it's not recorded or whatever but yeah i mean it's it's this process and and constant change and people adapting to change you know and, and i don't know there's been a lot of interesting stuff i mean the process of or the reality of dance music when it required live bands before jukeboxes before discotheques and disco just means somebody playing records in a club no need for a live band it doesn't mean a particular type of music it just means playing records rather than playing instruments um but when you needed a band to play dance music and dancers almost always want to hear what's the popular new thing it meant like in the 1930s if you were in the guy lombardo band and the sweetest orchestra in the world you would still have to learn some Count Basie songs if Count Basie had a particular hit and your audience wanted to dance to it. They would come up and ask you, hey, you know, play Six O'Clock Blues or whatever, and you'd have to play that. And that also meant that Count Basie had to deal with what Lawrence Welk and Guy Lombardo were doing because yeah. he would have fans at his crowd saying, hey, play me that new Lawrence Welk champagne song or whatever. And they'd have to, you know, if they wanted to please the crowd, they would have to say it. And that's what caused this melting pot of influences and you get things like ragtime and jazz and swing and rhythm and blues and rock and roll and et cetera, et cetera, because people are having to learn to play each other's music. And once, um, you know, around the time of Sergeant Pepper's discos replaced live bands in most places and a whole bunch of creative stuff came out of that. DJs started becoming musicians and playing records as if they were instruments and making whole new art forms that only came to life when they were being played by the DJs. But at the same time, there were whole generations of rock bands that never had to learn how to make a crowd dance. And, yeah. and I think that was part of, you know, the slow erosion of rock and roll as a pop popular music. I mean, if you look at these musics, jazz at one point, in the 20s and 30s was the dance music in america if people were dancing to it it was probably jazz if you ask people what they're dancing to they'd probably say oh, i'm dancing to jazz and by our definitions it might not be jazz like there's no improvisation or it's not based on the blues or whatever but it's dudes with cornets and drums and and you know basses and guitars 
playing in two, four, four, four time and a beat you can dance to. But then after World War II, the beboppers came along and made jazz and art music. Suddenly nobody's dancing to jazz anymore, which creates this opportunity for rhythm and blues and rock and roll. And rhythm and blues and rock and roll, well, not rhythm and blues, but rock and roll abdicated dance music in the late 60s. And that's when disco and then hip hop and you know electronic dance music come in and sees sees that opportunity i don't know where i'm going with this yeah. but <laughs> yeah, i saw a pretty amazing thing the other day where it, it was hans zimmer i'm sure you know hans zimmer uh-huh. uh, who used to be what was he it was in some like pop group at one time but eventually he became like the greatest of all film composers or the, the the most popular and prolific right now uh pro- arguably film yeah. composer and what Hans Zimmer had done was that he had painstakingly recorded every instrument in the orchestra. Basically, he fed all of that into uh, uh, this. He's got this instrument that's basically a keyboard, and he can play the whole orchestra through this keyboard. It's like a Melotron. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and and, and it basically he uses it to compose. Uh, when they actually, when the when they're actually playing the music for the soundtrack, he'll get the orchestra, you know. But yeah. he does his composition with this thing. But it's kind of amazing when you hear him playing this thing, and you, and it's a little hard to tell the difference. Yeah, it's like a mellotron. It's like a very advanced, very sophisticated mellotron. And incidentally, I just read, uh, I just saw something that said that. Uh, one person, can you guess who has already used AI to create recorded music? I bet you can guess who I'm thinking. Who it is? Was it Zimmer? No, it's Brian yeah. Eno. Ah, oh, Brian Eno, of course. Yeah, that yeah, makes perfect yeah. sense. Yeah, he's yeah, the yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't surprise me at all because he is always looking for different ways of creating, you know, whatever is inside of his head as music. It, you know, talk about you know the you know, dancing, dance music. Uh, back when I was working, managing and working with bands in the Bay Area in the 70s and 80s, uh, bands pretty much it had to start out being copy bands because that's what most of the clubs around the Bay Area wanted. They, they wanted a dance uh, club and people had to really be popular and have a a, a lot of original dance music to do that. So most bands had to go in and learn everybody else's songs. And if you wanted to become an original music artist, you suddenly became (laughs) unemployable at a lot of the clubs. And so it was, uh, it it was a, a bad thing for some musicians to change from being a dance music band to being an original music band. But that was uh, what we went through with a, a couple of different bands and income dropped uh, dramatically, but these bands ended up getting signed. So that's kind of what you had to, you had to bite the bullet and write your own stuff and make it happen because uh, there's only going to be a certain number of clubs in those days that would book you. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a big change. You can see it. It, it happens pretty fast in the historical record where, a band like the MC5 in Detroit in the mid 60s made a living playing high school dances, like made a living, bought their own equipment, 
bought nice cars as 18, 19 year olds. Then, you know, they start the Grandy Ballroom and they're playing San Francisco style, you know, ballroom music. But bands just a couple years later, like Grand Funk Railroad that comes along just a couple years later, they never had that opportunity to make a living as a band. And they had to go through that whole process of um, finding financial backers and finding, you know, it was a big expensive process just to make a demo, you know, at that point. And, and, and you'd, you'd have to hook up with somebody like Terry Knight, who's going to make you the biggest band in the world and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And you could not work your way up. You know, you read these stories about like 19 year old Ringo Starr pulling a big wad of cash out of his, out of his wallet before they've even made a Beatles record, you know, because they're making so much money playing the ballrooms and the dance halls and within 10 years, that opportunity is long gone. And, and, you know, the punk bands come along and kind of reinvent a means for new bands to play original music, but it's pretty much like art music. I mean, you have people that will come see these bands, but you don't hear stories about punk bands making a living playing music before they had a record out in the eighties you know, the way that you would hear about bands in the 60s making a nice living just by having a, a live gig. Like Waylon Jennings has had a gig in there in Phoenix and was making buku money in the early 60s, playing to a few thousand people a night, you know. But within 15 years, that opportunity didn't exist for country artists either because they were competing with records and discos and jukeboxes just like everybody else. You know, there's a big uh, controversy going on in Austin right now about musicians not being able to live in Austin. Many, many have moved out. A lot of them moved to my neighborhood out here in Bastrop County. Simply yeah, because, Lockhart. Uh, the city that we knew so long ago that it was welcoming to musicians and you could go everywhere and find a musician on every street corner it's not so much anymore it's no. the economy has done it to not so much the economy even but the development has become the yeah, the king music was king for a while in austin success development it's the king. success of austin and and becoming a a major urban center you know it it's on a par with San Francisco or New York or whatever. I mean, any number of places are like this and they are all expensive. You know, it's expensive to live. Yeah. And, and oddly enough, Dallas and Houston have had kind of renaissances because musicians can now, you know, you can live in Oak Cliff in Dallas and, and live pretty cheaply and plenty of opportunities to play music. So, you know, it's just these cycles that, that come and go. Austin had a long run as a, cheaper than it should have been city you know it had more amenities than than it should have had for the cost of living for decades mm. um but you know it seems like that was over by the by the early 2000s and then it became a destination for musicians to try to come here and get discovered which is different than an economy that's actually supporting a lot of working musicians um, i don't think anybody's trying to keep austin weird anymore you know, you still see those stickers around, but uh, I don't, there's a really me. long article about Austin and the New Yorker written by Larry Wright, you know? Yeah. Um, and I haven't read the whole thing yet. I, I read 
maybe half of it. And I kind of glanced forward a little bit, but, you know, basically the story is that Austin is not the Austin that most of the people who have been here for years remember and knew and and it's really changed. And, you know, I I don't know what you can do about that. I don't think there's anything you can do about it. And I don't know that necessarily need to do anything about it it's just yeah you know it's a phenomenon that's happening and individuals have to adapt but you know i I mean there's there's no law that says musicians have to be able to make a living playing music and you know for most of our history musicians were able to make money playing music but they there was no possibility of becoming the beatles or something you know like this idea that you can become rich and famous playing music that's a 20th century idea it was extremely extremely rare uh, before that even something like beethoven beethoven wasn't wealthy oh yeah you know? and, and you and, know uh, musicians always complain about like they're complaining now about streaming how streaming services or cutting them out of their profits but before it was recording companies and and both are true i mean it's yeah. true that musicians are probably not getting the cut they deserve of the whatever money is coming in i suspect with streaming services though one of the problems is that nobody's getting getting that many streams you know yeah there's Just like there's not so much, that much out money there. in the economy yeah. you know at the, at those prices you know, it's, it's very difficult to make it viable. And um, and also the major labels own most of Spotify and their, and it's their accounting practices that are the problem. I mean, yeah, it's just to me gotten to the point where it's completely impossible to defend the major labels and the big, you know, the three corporations that control most of the musical IP, which is a terrible term. They're not taking care of, the master tapes, you know, had the story that came out in the New York Times a couple of years ago about the massive fire they had at Universal's yeah. uh, warehouse where they were apparently storing most of their recorded music. The scary thing is that they've managed to bully almost everybody out of talking about that. You know, there was a, the New York Times reported that maybe 500,000 original rec- recordings were destroyed. And this is, this is like the Louvre. This is Bing yeah. Crosby, Billy Holiday, Chuck Berry, Buddy Holly. I mean, name an American artist. They probably had something in that collection. The master tapes were apparently destroyed. Multiple artists filed suit. They lost all the lawsuits. None of the suits that I saw were substantive rulings. They were all judges kind of making quick uh, rulings to throw these cases out. And as corrupt as our electoral and judicial systems are right now, I just don't have any faith in um, judges to, to give good rulings. I mean, to me, the last reasonable and positive ruling to come out in the IP space was uh, when the record label sued Betamax and the movie studio sued Betamax in the early 80s. And the judges said, no, no, we can, you can have Betamax, you can have VCRs. It's okay if, if a few commercials get fast forwarded through that's a fair trade-off for all the utility we're getting from this amazing new technology but then just 10 years after that when you get to the first rulings about sampling and hip-hop the judge clearly knew nothing about the music and had an attitude that of course these black punks don't aren't making anything valuable they're just stealing 
and it's bad and they need to stop, you know, Ooh. and it's just a, a terrible ruling that, that caused things like it's cheaper to cover a whole song. So you get something like Puff Daddy covering uh, that police song, Every Breath You Take or whatever, very little added value there. They changed a few words. They sampled basically the whole chorus, um, you know, have Puff Daddy singing instead of Sting. It's cheaper to, to license that song to cover than it is to sample a snare drum for one second. Like the, the, the president set it up that like, if you, you know, record yourself shuffling a deck of cards that, and somebody samples that they, they owe you songwriting credit, <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. It's completely destructive to creativity and um, just has set heinous precedents. And I, I don't see our system producing wise legal rulings on this stuff anytime soon. I mean, we are, I just think we're too corrupt and, and um, you know, just in a decadent phase of our society and can't make good decisions anymore. Oh, you well, speaking you had of mentioned the, uh, this is a, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. You had mentioned the disastrous fire that just destroyed uh, many, many great master tapes. The dirty little secret they don't ever talk about is a lot of those master tapes were garbage already because they yeah. were too lazy been to go in of. and care for them properly. Uh, you know, I did a lot of analog re recording over the years and I had to do, you know, special things on really old analog tapes. If it's a, a certain type of tape or if it's a certain age, you actually, before you can run it off to make a copy of it, you have to bake the tape in an oven. Yeah. It's in a yeah. special process and you can only do it once because as soon as that tape has been run through and re-recorded, the original is going to flake off and disappear. Oh, wow. And I thought you were baking cookies in there. Oh, well, a lot of that stuff happened. You know, it happened with the, you know, the band that I managed and we re had yeah. releases that we had to go in and do a baking of our master tape when we released the CD in in Germany. And uh, it was just really sad to see that thing, you know, just fall yeah. apart after the, we were lucky. We we rescued it, you know, in time. But a lot of those, they didn't care. You know, it was yeah. some African-American artist that, that wasn't a big hit, but was a great musician. And it was a great recording, mm. but it didn't make it to their a top 10 list of things we're going to save. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was kind of hoping we could shift gears here. Nate uh, uh, is the great host of the great podcast, uh, Let It Roll. And everybody should be listening to that podcast, especially if you love music. But Nate was also a political consultant for years. And we certainly don't want you out the door without talking about <laughs> politics. <laughs> politics i don't know that i have anything good to say about politics right now I've well, been to... what good could you possibly find to say not much it's it's dire times and I, I think watching the democrats struggling to figure out what to do with biden and the i found it just too coincidental that the um 
classified paperwork suddenly appeared just as re-election season started. And the people that blew the whistle on that were Democrats. They were his oh, lawyers, yeah. you know. And so not to get too paranoid, but I don't think you have to be especially paranoid because the dude said he wouldn't run again. He's in his 80s. He polls very badly. You'd have to be really dumb to be a leader of the Democratic Party and not be trying to replace Biden. I mean, it, it's it's an obvious needs to be done thing. I don't know. I'm you know, I'm kind of back and forth on that because I I thought initially I thought I really didn't think he would run again. And now it sounds like he wants to. And yeah. I think, oh shit, that might be a problem. But then again, uh you see him like his State of the Union speech was pretty good. Uh, it does seem like they actually can... accomplished a fuck of a lot, you know, as a president. Um, so maybe he's actually a pretty good president. Maybe... I don't think so. I mean, um, and Nell can hate me on it for this or whatever, but I, I think you just have to look at it in pretty big term, big picture terms. And remember that Biden's the same guy who campaigned on, oh my God, you know, we're about to lose 200,000 people to COVID and any president who loses this many people should resign in disgrace. Well, Biden's yeah. presided over the death of 600,000 people and his COVID czar, Jeff Science was bad apple, corrupt dude, you know, who's faced numerous fines and penalties for his business corruption um, over the years. And the entire thrust of Biden's COVID policy was let's just stop talking about it. You know, like they're declaring it no longer an emergency, even though we're close to a thousand people dying a week of this, of this thing. And it, and it has very real impacts when they declare it no longer an emergency. It means the drugs get more expensive. It means time off gets harder to get. It means, yeah. you know, compensation is, is harder to come by. And it's also insanely stupid to try to pretend we're not having a pandemic for economic reasons because the pandemic is what ultimately hurts the economy. We've got so many young people who are ill that can't work that it's noticeable. It's it's statistical. You know, people are going, well, what's this spike? And it's like, well, those appear to be people with long COVID who cannot work. And, um, you know, so I think that's a pretty big fail. I think the failure to prosecute Trump for January 6th is a monumental failure. I, I do not have words for the scope of that failure. If you are running a democratic republic and somebody attempts a coup, it doesn't matter how half-assed the coup was. This was a legitimate coup attempt. And we learned from the committees that took way too long to get this information out there. We learned this was pre-planned, that they knew what they were doing. They were stupid and planned it very badly. But there were bad actors in the Trump administration, in the Secret Service, in the Pentagon, in the Capitol Police Corps, who very clearly sabotaged the response to this stuff or prevented any response from happening. And, you know, you read any history about any kind of republic that has faced a coup and they either prosecute that shit with a quickness or they never do and they fall to coups. Well, but they've been prosecuting these guys all along they they've haven't been, prosecuted trump they have, yet but it's no it's, they haven't prosecuted trump and and it is 2023 they're not going to it's 2023 they are not going to 
You don't you prosecute sure? a Q this way. They they might prosecute some more losers, but are they going to go after Trump? No. Do I think Merrick Garland is suddenly going to grow a pair and become a, a vigilant prosecutor? No, he is not. This is never going to happen. You have to prosecute a coup while it's hot. You They needed to do this in spring of 2020 when it happened, because when the leadership responds in a serious way by rounding up the perpetrators and putting them on trial. When you have somebody who is the president of the United States and they attempt a coup, they attempt to overthrow the legally elected government of the United States, that is the most serious crime we have on the books. That is treason. And that has to be prosecuted immediately. Immediately. You have to perp walk the guy out of the White House that day. And from the beginning, the Democrats treated this as all, well, we'll just act like it's normal and we'll save these committee hearings for right before the 2022 election. And that'll really show them. I mean, I know these people. I've worked for these people. They think of everything in terms of campaign fundraising and then uh, election cycle media and TV ads. That's the only reality they understand. They don't understand military strategy. They don't understand prosecution. They don't understand anything except this campaign faux reality that they swim in and live in. And they are just not serious people. I mean, you listen to Nancy Pelosi and the things she said, you know, just whether it's, you know, prosecuting somebody for flouting congressional subpoenas or something. But you really never get a sense that like, you know, when you read about coups or you read about the October Revolution in Russia in 1917, people like Lenin and Trotsky were very, very, very focused on we have X number of sailors who are on our side. We have this one unit of military unit of the Navy that's very close to the capital. Where can we get these big burly dudes with guns and win? And they were very focused on how many doors are there to the room? There's four doors. We need eight goons and we need two of them at each door. You know, they were very focused on the brass tacks of physical reality and physical power and physical force because they knew that the governing comes from that monopoly and violence that the state has. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that our current generation of Democratic leaders or Republican leaders has the gravity or the connection to reality to think in those terms. I mean, I, I really don't think it ever occurred to Nancy Pelosi to ask how many, how many um, you know, security personnel do we have at the Capitol? Who are those people loyal to? Do I know any of them? Do you think Nancy Pelosi talks to her security staff like a person or do you think she just snaps her fingers and, and you yeah, there, it's hard, and, you know, it's hard to say. I, I mean, I could imagine her doing that. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I mean, don't really know. I don't know either. And, and you know, Tom DeLay was a wonderful person on, a, on an individual level. And Lloyd Doggett's a terrible asshole. So you never can tell by somebody's politics what their personal conduct is going to be. I mean, Tom DeLay was called the concierge of the Congress because he took such good care of every congressman that he was aware of. He was partisan and he favored the Republicans over the Democrats. But if you're a Republican staffer and your kid had an abscess tooth, you could go talk to Tom DeLay and he would probably help you fix it back when he was the majority leader of the House. And, um, you know, so you can't just because somebody's a crook and 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 a goon doesn't mean that they're not sophisticated enough to be polite to the people that work for him. But my experience has been that 
most of these incredibly wealthy and powerful politicians are not nice to the people that work for them, are not aware of the people that work for them, and just assume that the government's going to take care of it. Mm. Oh, these people break the law. Oh, well, the government will arrest them. Well, you are the government. We are the government. We have to do this ourselves or it's not going to yeah. get done. And the January 6th thing, that boat, that boat has sailed. I mean, the seriousness of that would have had to been responded with was something at least as serious as the Watergate trials or the Nuremberg trials. I mean, incredibly serious. Like, do you remember how seriously people took the Ken Starr impeachment of Clinton in the 90s? Yeah. It would have had to have been at least that serious. But, you know, our, our politics has degenerated into total farce. And so, you know, for me, it's with a Biden, reality TV show. Yeah. And, and, um, I, I, you know, I just, I, I, definitely prefer Biden to Trump, but just because one person's not a florid, you know, floridly psychotic doesn't mean that they're a successful president, you know, like you can be, you can have Caligula and Commodus who are both terrible monsters of, you know, Roman emperors. They both sucked as Roman emperors. Maybe Commodus was better than Caligula, you know, I'd hate to be in the position and nobody got to vote on that, but I'd hate to be in the position of choosing between Caligula and Commodus. But, you know, one of them was probably better than the other one, but ultimately they both fail. And so, you know, there's, you know, there's one guy who I think is actually like the epitome of current politics. He totally represents what he's like the ultimate Santos. 20, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a the remarkable politician, character. man. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, you mentioned the uh, the rich and powerful politicians, and that I feel is a big part of the problem on both parties. Yeah, they don't stop campaigning ever. There's, yeah. you know, it. There's no one that is going in there just to do the the job of governance. No one really knows about governance anymore. It's all about. We've got to do something to get money into the campaign. We've got to always be thinking about the campaign. And no one's really thinking about running the country, not, no. not all the time. They're, they're always on the campaign trail. Yeah. And one of my formative experiences, one of the reasons that I don't work in politics anymore, is that in 2007, I was in D.C. and I had helped elect a number of Congress people in 2006. And so I was up on the Hill and at the DNC meeting some Congress people I'd worked with. And they had, the staffers were on the Hill. The hired help mm -hmm. was on the Hill writing the legislation. The Congress people were in the DNC building in cubicles, dialing for dollars and being mm -hmm. harangued by Rahm Emanuel, who's running around waving his cut off stub finger in their faces and screaming at people if they're, you know, I heard you talking to your wife. This is money time. You know, you're, you're wasting my time. This is money time. And screaming, this is money time at these putatively elected officials who are supposed to be representing, you know, half a million people each. And it was just like working at Southwestern Bell and watching a line manager yell at people for saying, no, you don't tell them how much the usual package costs. That's why we don't have a usual package. You've got to give them the whole rigmarole to get them to buy more crap. I mean, it was the exact same mentality of people in cubicles slaving away dialing for dollars and some bully yelling at them 
while the government is being run by 22 year olds who you know had worked for joe lieberman the, the year before and now they're writing legislation for these idealistic you know progressive candidates that we work so hard to elect and it's just a broken system and it doesn't produce good outcomes and it doesn't produce good people so how do we fix it <laughs> it's got a crash i think i don't i don't yeah. think it can be fixed you know i, I thought of you know when i voted for biden i thought that was just a terrible thing to have to do because i knew it was just another machine politician he's the old school and there's not going to be any significant change you know it'll be a little less you know radical than uh, trump but you know, it, it, he's still part of that old school that has kept our government uh, you know, pretty much in, in a, a suspended state of animation. You know, it, it, there's not a lot of real change. No, Biden was a leader in every bad decision in the last 40 years. I mean, you got to give the guy his due. He was a leading neoliberal politician throughout the Reagan and Clinton era. So he was hit deep in every bad idea we've had since then, you know, and you're not going to get reform by electing Biden. You're just not. And who and would now, you run? Who would you run? As a I mean, Democrat? at, at yeah. this point, you know, 2020 was the idea was it's an open primary. There's no mm -hmm. incumbent. So what an exciting opportunity to get the backbenchers out here, get them some shine. We've surely got a dozen talented Democrats that are ready to step up for this, you know? Mm -hmm. And what happened was, was that the governors like Jay Inslee of Washington state, who I think was one of the more promising candidates, he got no attention. He's in Washington state. He's three hours behind the East coast media centers. He didn't hire a Liz Smith like Pete Buttigieg did. He did not have that mega power press person that can get, you know, the, the networks to pay attention to you. So it was like, he didn't even run. You know, meanwhile, we've got Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of whatever dump he, he was the mayor of, with this appalling record as a McKinsey consultant and just, you know, as a mayor, he had a pretty bad record of racist police enforcement and et cetera, and becomes this media darling and is now this, I, I would say, the worst secretary of transportation in the history of the of the job, unless there's somebody from World War One or whatever that I'm not aware of. But um, his performance as secretary of transportation has been just clown car abysmal, um, you know, but the, the net outcome of it was was that Kamala Harris and Pete were elevated in these positions where now they're essentially the number two and number three Democrat and sort of heirs apparent and we've devolved into the status where they can't figure out how to get rid of the vice president. You know, I mean, like, look at the history of this country. FDR got rid of the vice president like every term. He had a new one, you know, and, and Biden is in the situation where he feels beholden to the African-American you know, demographic that helped him win in South Carolina. So no way is he going to make a move to get rid of Kamala. It seems pretty apparent to me she's a disastrous failure. She's polling even worse than Biden is. She polls you know, he's losing to Trump by five points. She's losing to Trump by eight points. Like, you know, what are we doing? But the rest of the candidates that we had in 2020, I mean, Cory Booker shamed himself. Elizabeth Warren, I think, ruined what credibility she had by staying in the, the race so long and helping hand it to Biden. And Bernie did the same thing. I mean, Bernie 
you know, I think got worked. Um, and, and if the timing of it had been just a little bit different, you know, the, if the timing of the specific primary days had just been off by a week or two, Sanders might have won it in a walk, but he didn't. And he's made peace with Biden and is no longer, there's no opposition within the Democratic Party at this point. If you look at AOC or Bernie, you know, or Ilhan Omar, or all these people, the squad that we had such high hopes for a couple of years ago, they're not opposing Biden at all in any material way, shape or form, nor are they preparing themselves for a challenge to Biden. They're very much on Team Democrat, which is really scary because I, I think Team Democrat's about to sleepwalk into Team DeSantis, you know, although watching Trump and DeSantis go at each other, it's hard to fathom how is that going to produce a, a presidential contender? I mean, they're already calling each other child molesters, you know, I mean, Trump's the only I, one that's gone that far. I so think far. they need to just set those two up in, in a cage match. I mean, that, that would be good entertainment there. <laughs> I would never push a 78 year old man into a cage match, but, or however old Trump is, but yeah, this is basically, you know, it's, it's entertainment and circuses. Well, talk um, about circuses. You know, I have friends who are, uh, part of the uh, crowd that worships Elon. They're, they're muskies. <laughs> and they think he needs to be the president. And when I hear that, you know, it's, you know, it's like it, I get horrified. And I think, well, you know, look what he did to Twitter. I mean, maybe we need to get him president for like six weeks, just long enough to really destroy the whole infrastructure. And then we <laughs> maybe we can rebuild it in something that, that works. Maybe, maybe but he's not the guy. Yeah, I don't know. But yeah. that's uh, that's now you're saying like Steve Bannon, though. I mean, that's kind of his thing. Let's just smash it all to pieces so we can rebuild it. There's no guarantee we're going to rebuild it as anything better. In fact, it's extremely no, what, unlikely. That's know? why revolutions are so feared, you know, yeah. but there's a time and a place when that's the only possibility. Um, but <laughs> I mean, this country is too old, too exhausted, too divided, yeah. uh, too too intellectually degenerate to produce, you know, a positive rev political revolution. I just don't see see any any hope of that happening. Um, but I do hope we can pull out of our collapse and not start World War Three. And uh, you know, because the thing about the particular our current moment is you know i watched the 2003 iraq invasion happen i had a front row seat for that i was working you know for bush's uh, tv consultants and pollsters and saw that stuff coming very close and it was terrifying i mean there was a period of time when it was literally, I was afraid to say in Austin, Texas, I don't know if invading Iraq really is going to do anything is, is a good thing. And, you know, Howard Dean came along and kind of made it okay to, to, to speak up and express your concerns. But I found the information environment around the Ukraine and the Taiwan situations to be even worse, filled with, you know, we didn't have Twitter bots in 2003. Now that's basically all we have. And, uh, the media is so appallingly ignorant. I mean, it's very difficult just to figure out what is actually happening on the ground in Ukraine. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's very difficult just to figure out who's winning and who's losing. What are the casualty rates? We, you know, we get these estimates of the casualty rates. The Ukrainian numbers are somewhat consistent, although they're almost never released. 
but the Russian numbers vary wildly. And that's just from Western sources. That's just if you compare like the BBC's most conservative count, which is only about 15,000 with, you know, the Washington Post's most aggressive count, which is over 200,000. Like <laughs> that's a pretty big gulf, you know? And, and I don't, I don't have any faith in our military leadership and our political military. I have more faith in the Pentagon than I do in the State Department, for example, but I don't have much faith in either of them. And I just, you know, going into World War III on multiple fronts with this team at the helm and the potential of an even worse team taking over is terrifying. And, and uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just hoping we can survive the next 10 years and hopefully that will resolve the crises. And, you know, maybe some of us will get to limp along through our elderly years without another, <laughs> you know, get the world war over with and, and maybe we'll survive, you know, but I, I think we just have to go through the crisis, the crises, the multiple crises that are bearing down on us. And um, it's, terrifying it's gonna be a tough run yeah 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 a lot of us aren't gonna make it you know, i i have held a kind of skepticism about it it's really been hard for me to believe that the united states would go full-on fascist which now people believe that's what's happening right now and and i just kind of don't buy it i don't think that's where people's heads are at but I, in my life, uh, I have never seen fascists with the kind of strength and power that they seem to have today. Yeah, and, and I keep know in they, mind, they did. They did not too long before I was born. Uh, you yeah. know, like back in the World War II era, there was a very strong fascist element in this country, and there yeah, were people and, who and, supported Hitler. You know, and look at the post-Reconstruction South and the whole country post-reconstruction after 1877 yeah. that was essentially a fascist government i mean it was it was finalizing the genocide of the native americans it was de facto re-enslaving african americans after they've been free and using mass murder as the tool i mean lynching essentially any white person in the south could kill any black person in the south for any reason at any time you know for get away 70 it, years yeah, yeah. If that's not fascism, I don't know what it is. You know, I mean, you, you know, there was over a hundred lynchings in Waco, Texas. Seventeen of them had postcards that went out with them. You know, have you ever looked at those postcards from the lynching? No. Those faces are the same people you see at the mall today. I mean, it, it fascism has a very normal face, and you know, it's these zombies at a picnic watching some, you know, black kid get lynched. It, it's horrific, but. You know, that was where we came from. I mean, Goebbels and Goering would both tell you, we modeled the Nazi plan on the United States. We thought what y'all did with annihilating an entire race of Native Americans and enslaving Africans was the model. That was where they got their game plan. Yeah. You know, so. I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah. Read some Goering and and and, and read him talking about the United States. And um you know, the, the, the mistake the Germans made was that they invaded Russia when they didn't have the resources to beat them. You know, if they had gone for Iraq or whatever and just taken England's oil reserves, uh, you know, all bets are off. But, 
you know, the reason that the, 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 the Americans were able to annihilate this whole continent was because Europe had this giant population boom for several hundred years. And we were, you know, able to just import Europeans and Africans to, to work and, you know, wipe the slate clean of Native Americans. I mean, there've only been two continental genocides in human history that I'm aware of. One is in North America and, you know, from the 1400s to the 20th century. Another one is Han China when the, the Chinese wiped out all the ethnic groups in the, or most all the ethnic groups in, you know, the Chinese subcontinent. So, well, on that, on that cheerful note, <laughs> I, will, <laughs> I will note that we have come to the end. And you'll have hour. to return for another uh, round here because uh, I'm sure there's a lot more we can discuss in both music and politics. Yeah, we'll, let's, we got to cheer people up. I got to find something cheery to say. <laughs> well, let's All go right. looking for some cheerful stuff and we'll bring it back for another one. Sounds good. Thanks for having okay, me, guys. Hey, man. We'll Thank see you, you soon. Thanks for joining us. You can follow the Plutopia News Network at plutopia.io. On Facebook, go to at Plutopia News. On Twitter, it's at Plutopia. With John Lepkowski, I'm Scoop Sweeney. This is the Plutopia News Network, 20 minutes into the future. <laughs>